welcome to uh, Equipping Hour, our class on biblical biographies. We will be looking at Joash today. How many of you guys, if you had to take a pop quiz on King Joash right now, would do really poorly on the on the pop quiz? Okay. All right. All right. Great. You're all in the right spot. Sounds good. Uh, let's pray. God, thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for this time together around your word together. Um, in a small group before we all gather as a church, I pray that um, everything that we do today would be encouraging to us spiritually, that we'd be encouraging to others spiritually. God, would you fan into flame the uh, affections in our heart for Christ. May we love him more as a result of today. May we love you more. May we love the Spirit more. May we have a, a growing affection for one another as well. Uh, God, encourage us through this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we had, a, uh, we had a, a rule in my house whenever we were growing up. I don't know if you guys had something similar, but it was, uh, it was finish what you start. Um, and um, most often heard that, or maybe not most often, but often heard that in the context of sports. So uh, me and my I had a brother and a sister, uh, we played a bunch of sports, and you could really go out for any sport that you wanted to. Um, but if you started something, you had to finish it. You couldn't start a sports season and then get like two weeks in and be like, all right, I don't want to do that anymore. Your parents would be like, say, no, you finish what you start. You don't, you're not allowed to bail out early. You have to, you have to, you have to keep going. And so, um, you know, I've known other people. Uh, we weren't a musical family, but I've known people that had similar things with, with, uh, with learning a musical instrument or picking up a new skill. You start doing that, then you want to see it through all the way to the end. You sign up for, you know, 10 lessons of piano or something. You're going to take all of those. I'm giving a, an attempt for any musicians out there. I don't know nothing about music. Um, but that was what, so uh, when we were younger, that's what commitment meant. So if you're going to be committed to something, being committed to something meant finishing what you start. Um, the older we got, it was it was less about um, uh, the 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 worry wasn't that we were going to quit right in the middle of it. Um, and so as we got older, you know, we kind of had that in our minds that we weren't going to quit in the middle of something. And so the older we got, it didn't be, it wasn't uh, finish what you start. It was more of uh, give full effort at what you're doing. Uh, and so so yeah, commitment means finishing what you start, but commitment also now means that you don't go halfway in anything. Uh, so you don't cut corners, you don't take shortcuts. And so again, in sports, uh, if, if my parents were watching a practice and they would see me kind of when the coach had his back turned, kind of you know, not running the sprint all the way through the line or kind of goofing off or cutting, uh, making shortcuts, uh, they would let me know about that. Like, you don't take shortcuts. You go hard uh, and give full effort, give max effort all the time. And so, uh, so commitment meant finishing what you start, but then commitment also meant, meant finishing what you start and faithfulness to that commitment no matter who's watching. So that, that's, what, that's what commitment meant. And so that was kind of instilled in me and my brother and my sister growing up is, is commitment was finishing what you start and kind of a, a faithfulness no matter who was watching. Why do parents do that? Why do parents have uh, rules like that? Um, you know, finish what you start, give your all. I think one is so we don't waste our money, you know, putting kids in sports and music lessons that, that, uh, that they, they bail on. Uh, so I think that's, that's one reason. But, uh, but, you know, we know that things are going to get hard. We know that learning a new skill isn't going to be easy. Uh, we know there's going to be setbacks and frustrations. We know there's going to be sacrifice, whether it's uh, physical pain, whether it's skipping social events, whether it's going to bed early. Um, 
physical exhaustion. We know that it's going to be tempting to quit and that, other, and, and that things other than finishing well will start to sound really alluring. Well, I think, um, you know, you see why these rules, these principles are good and wise, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because I, 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 I want to kind of commend to us that there's a similar thing that's true for us spiritually. Uh, there's, there's a, that, 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 um, this idea, uh, is something that is, is certainly true for us spiritually, and we don't always think about it this way, but the same advice applies to us in a spiritual sense, um, about how we need to hear that same message, uh, regarding our relationship with the Lord. Faithfulness means commitment all the way to the end, no matter who is around. All right. Regardless if somebody's watching, if somebody's not, the Lord is always watching. Uh, and so faith, faithfulness for us means uh, commitment all the way to the end, no matter who is around. So that, I think, is what we learn from the life of King Joash. That concept, that idea of faithfulness to the Lord looking like that, uh, full commitment all the way to the end, no matter who is around. I think you'll see that by the time we're done uh, in our time in God's Word this morning, in this lesson, um, that you'll see this in the light of, of King Joash. So we'll see some uh, see what commitment to the Lord looks like and the need to continue in that commitment, regardless of circumstances, all the way to the end. So if I could put kind of a lesson, I'll just give you, I meant to put this on your handout and uh, kind of uh, didn't, uh, didn't put it there at the top. I was going to give this to you, but um, here's a lesson I would say I think we get from King Joash. So your relationship with the Lord will be displayed by your commitment to following him and your continuance in following him all the way to the end. I'll read that a couple more times. So your relationship with the Lord will be displayed by your commitment to following him and your continuance in following him all the way to the end. Your relationship with the Lord will be displayed by your commitment to following him and your continuance in following him all the way to the end. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to 2 Kings chapter 11. 2 Kings chapter 11. This is where we find King Joash and his life. We're going to, uh, in a little bit, we'll jump to 2 Chronicles as well, uh, where he's called Jehoash. And so if you've spent any time in these kings, you'll, you'll know that uh, they'll have... Uh, uh, alternate names that are used for them often. Um, and so we'll see, it's Joash here. We'll see Jehoash uh, at other places uh, in Scripture. Um, but Second Kings chapter 11, and uh, really what I want to do, I want to look at, at, at Joash's life and, and kind of three scenes. So three kind of uh, uh, movements that we'll see in uh, these, these chapters that speak about his life. Uh, and the first one uh, I'm calling the rescue of Joash. The rescue of Joash. I get a reader to, to read, just start reading there, go the, I don't know, maybe the first three verses or so of chapter 11, 2 Kings 11. Do the first three? Sure. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat, daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons, who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, with Ath- while Athaliah reigned over the land. Mm-hmm. So you guys, uh, maybe more famously, uh, know that there is a, a, a wicked 
um, kind of a wicked queen mother in the northern kingdom of Israel. So we have the northern kingdom of Israel, we have the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, uh, who's that wicked kind of queen mother that we that that's more readily uh, known about in the northern kingdom of Israel? Anybody know? Yeah, Jezebel, right? So we have Jezebel who is just uh, yeah, extremely nasty and wicked. Uh, well, this is kind of the southern kingdom counterpart. <laughs> southern kingdom of Junior counter, uh, counterpart is, uh, is uh, Athaliah or Queen Athaliah um, uh, there in Judah. And so, um, so after Ahaziah uh, meets his death, uh, at the hands of Jehu, which is in the, the, the chapter before this, um, Athaliah kind of sees an open door, um, and, and she takes it. And so in, in chapter uh, 11, verse 1, you'll see right there, so Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, uh, saw that her son was dead. She arose and destroyed all the royal family. <laughs> By the way, that's her family. So it's not like... Like uh, this is like so she sees an open door. She wants uh, control and to reign so badly uh, that line that you see there in verse one isn't you know I mean not that that would make it better if she was killing somebody else's family uh, but you, you'll see that where you know you have these clashing families and somebody's going to come in and kill no that's that's her own family that she's knocking off uh, there uh, thus as her uh, kind of sinfulness and wickedness um, that is to kill off uh, part of her own royal family. Um, again, not that it make it better if it was somebody else's family, but you just see her callousness and her greed and her lust for power. Actually, she actually murders her own grandkids and other family members in order to try to uh, secure her throne. All right, so, so you see uh, that's going on, but we see uh, Jehoshaphat. So we see this uh, uh, lady Jehoshaphat, the, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, takes Joash the son of Ahaziah and steals him away from among the king's son uh, because uh, Ahaziah or uh, uh, Athaliah was going to put him to death and they uh, hide him uh, for a season so that he was not put to death uh, I think it says six years there in verse three uh, Brett why don't you keep going um, verse four and following but in the seventh year Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord and he made a covenant with them, and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's sons. Uh, and he commanded them, This is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath, and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate uh, sewer, and a third at the gate behind the guards, shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you, which come on duty in forth, force on the Sabbath, and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king, shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. But with the king, when he goes out and when he comes in. Uh, I'm sorry, be with the king. Uh, the captains did according to all that Jehoiada, the priest, commanded. And they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath, with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath, and came to Jehoiada, the priest. And the priest gave the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, so <laughs> I love this story. There should be a movie made about this um, if there hasn't yet. But there's a, you might not immediately recognize it, but this right here is a critical time a uh, critical moment, not only in the book of Second Kings and in the Bible, but actually in human history. Uh, here's why. You, you might remember 
that you know this narrative of First and Second Kings. Who, who are the kings towards the beginning of this narrative that that, that we read about in the beginning of First and Second Kings, when Israel had a united monarchy? Yep, Saul, David, Solomon, right? You had this united monarchy, Saul, David, Solomon, until uh, uh, the kingdom splits with Jeroboam and Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's uh, sons. And so, yeah, you see uh, at the beginning that we go all the, going all the way back to the beginning of the narrative in First and Second Kings, you see David on the throne, and the torch was passed to his son Solomon, who, because of his sin, was removed, and, and the kingdom uh, divides into the north and south. But when that happened, God made a promise. God made a promise, and he said that he would keep a light burning in Judah for the sake of David. Right? So, so David was king, a uh, man after God's own heart, that you have the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that there's going to be this Davidic king on the throne. Solomon messes it all up, uh, and, and the, the kingdom divides. But God makes a promise. He said, I will keep a light burning on the throne because of David. So there would be this line of Davidic kings ruling in Judah that would one day lead to the forever Davidic king that we read about uh, uh, um, back in chapter 7. And so um, so the the, the Davidic king, the Messiah, the Christ. Well, at 2 Kings 11, that Davidic line is one baby away from extinction. And so if you're a Jew reading this and you're reading through the life of Jehoash, you're, you're kind of on the edge of your seat at this point, right? I mean, you know the, you know the story, <laughs> you kind of, but you're, you're, you're leaning in and you're like, oh my goodness, we have this promise, we have this line, and, and Athaliah has just killed everybody, and then we read about there's one baby that somebody hid away, right? And so, uh, so one uh, baby away from distinction, Joash dies, and that's it. So the tension here in the text is high, uh, and, and this reality heightens both, the, both I think, the evil of Athaliah... Uh, and heightens the faithfulness of those that we're about to see acting. So it kind of that tension kind of uh, uh, make, gives you a contrast for her wickedness and for the faithfulness uh, of people sticking their necks out here. All right, so Athaliah is killing people. Uh, I love verse 2. Uh, uh, it just begins with the word but. Verse 2 begins, There's a faithful woman, Jehoshaphat, who is Ahaziah's sister. She takes action and saves one of her nephews, a boy named Joash. Right. So they, they hide him with the help of a nurse for six years, uh, while Athaliah reigns, uh, and she's reigning ignorant of his existence. All right. Um, any any other place? Just as you as we read that, just this far in the text, anything kind of pinging in your mind of of similar things you see anywhere in scripture? Yep. Well, in the northern kingdom, several times the entire royal line is wiped out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of a this is a recurring kind of a moment of tension that we have yeah I think uh, I think of uh, the hiding of Moses mm. <laughs> yep yep Exodus 2 yep you see Moses uh, saved by his mother good I think of uh, Joshua as well Joshua 2 the spies uh, uh, with, with Rahab how about going forward New Testament Yeah, you have a you have a king looking to kill every you know get rid of the baby get rid of the uh, the the ruler on the throne uh, so yeah Jehoshaphat is in a long line of of faithful women in scripture 
Um, and she should probably be more well-known than what she is, right? We know Rahab. Uh, we, we know about the story of Moses. We know about Mary and, and Joseph. And what happens, uh, Jehoshaphat is, is one, of those, one of those people, uh, one of those uh, uh, faithful women in Scripture um, who take extreme uh, measures at, their own, at risk of their own personal safety and well-being um, to serve God and uh, see that the line of Messiah is, is carried on and, uh, and that, that we get Jesus. Um, I did just consider her, her example for a moment, the example of Jehoshaphat. Um, any, any, any things you think we learned from her? Any things as you read uh, about her that you think we can kind of take away from her life? Yep. One thing that strikes me is she doesn't save her own children. Mm. She may not have had any sons, but those would have been members of the royal family too. Mm. But she sees an opportunity to save somebody else's son, and she, she takes it even though her presumably her all her male children are wiped out. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so she doesn't just kind of wallow in, in her own grief there. The, I'm sure the grief was great uh, for any, any death that she saw in her family. That didn't stop her from seizing an opportunity to serve the Lord and to, and to, to do what was right. That's good. She was risking her life. Mm-hmm. That's very risky. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's very courageous, um, you know, which I think, you know, for us is true too. There's, 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 uh, there's risk uh, to our relationship with God at times, right? That, this could have gotten her in a lot of trouble, um, but she stood to, to pay a great, uh, you know, she could have paid a great price for her faith, but she did it. You know, that's um, courage is called for in our walk with the Lord as well. Even like the amount of time, I think too, is like so with your main idea, like she's. He remained with her for six years. Hmm. Kind of like glosses over that, <laughs> like, right? It's like that's a long time, and she did not like she didn't turn herself in like every day. Possibly could have been like, oh, I hope she doesn't find Joash today. And yep. uh, she just she was faithful until it was like there was time. Hmm. That's right. Yep. Yeah, and those are uh, yeah the first six years of raising a kid are not always the easiest ones either. <laughs> and so she, yeah, she steps in there. Yeah. Yep. You know, I think it's interesting, too. You see her commitment to God even above her own family, right? Because, I mean, this is, she has to choose between her own mother and God, right? She has to choose, uh, and she sides with God. So, you know, and imagine raising a baby in secret, <laughs> um, you know, for that long, which is, is another one. Uh, I think you see concealed obedience here. So this isn't, you know, oftentimes uh, our obedience to the Lord isn't flashy. It's not public. It's not known. It's not something that everybody sees. It's not broadcast. This isn't something she could tweet about. Be like, "Hey guys, look what I did!" Like I hid, you know, I hid the baby. No, this is this is concealed obedience. Uh, but it's the right thing, and she does it. And you know, it doesn't get all the press. It doesn't get all the headlines. Uh, but it does eventually. For <laughs> it gets headlines for all of eternity in God's word. But uh, but um, at the time, it's just concealed obedience. So. I just want to draw those out because I think, again, Jehoshaphat should probably be better known to us than what she is. And I think we can be encouraged uh, by this woman that many of us have never heard of before or remember really uh, meditating on. Um, you know, God's going to call us likewise into difficult seasons, hard decisions, um, places where following him may be disadvantageous um, as we speak unwelcome truths, as we proclaim the gospel, as we... Um, stand for what's right, uh, but it's always worth it to, to stand with the Lord. So, yeah. It's a lot like, it reminds me of Obadiah. Hmm. Obadiah, in, uh, when he hid the hundred priests hmm. from Ahaz, or Ahab, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and 
he did that. He he's not well known either. Yeah, that's true. Scripture. Yep. But what he did was amazingly courageous. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Those are. It's always good to see those little pictures of of faithfulness where we we don't always you know don't always see them. So that's good. Yep. All right. Well, let's keep going. Uh, moving on. Uh, uh, again, I said this already, but this you know this should be a movie. Verse three. So he's hidden by his nurse for six years, uh, and, and in verse th- in verse four we meet this guy named Jehoiada. Uh, now we're we're going. He's going to be a very important figure in, in these chapters and moving moving forward. Uh, maybe even more important than Joash himself, which we'll we'll see in a minute. Uh, but Jehoiada stages a coup. Uh, basically, what happens in verses five through twelve is that Jehoiada gets the uh, allegiance of the military leaders and the temple personnel, uh, and he comes up. Uh, with a plan that's going to kind of uh, spring into action during the change of the temple guard. All right, so the reason he does that, he, he makes his plan for the shift change. So there's going to be a shift change, right? You got these workers, these workers are going to leave, there's going to be new workers coming in. And so he makes his plan to happen right then because if he were going to stage this coup, uh, this coup and have all this huge military personnel show up, it's going to draw all kinds of attention. Athaliah is going to see it. She's going to know what's going on. And so he's really wise here to, to, to stage this um, at a time uh, where there is kind of a shift. But instead of the, the, the shift that's moving off, instead of heading home, they go into the temple where the priest uh, equips them with weapons and all this kind of stuff. Um, all the weapons that were formerly David's uh, and had been, uh, all these weapons were David's and they had been deposited into the temple uh, as was kind of the, the custom. So that guard coming off their shift would go into the temple, get all these weapons that are in there from David, uh, and then they surrounded the new king, the seven-year-old boy, uh, and just to make sure that nothing happened to him. So that was, that was the old guard's only job. The guard that was going off the shift, that was their only job. Don't go home, go into the temple, grab your weapons, surround the seven-year-old boy and make sure nothing happens to him. Um, so so that, that was their job. The new guard coming on duty uh, was divided into three groups. One group would guard the royal palace as they normally would so that Athaliah would look out and she would see her normal guards out there and she wouldn't be, uh, she'd be none the wiser to what was going on. So that, that was one group would guard the royal palace. Um, and then uh, the other two guarded the, the two gates, which would have been the main access points between Athaliah's uh, palace and the temple where the seven-year-old boy is about to be made king. So, I mean, you, you can just see the, this battle plan drawn up. I'm really, really kind of tactically uh, wise the way that he sets it up and has everything there. So you got these people guarding the boy. You got people kind of keeping the charade up that they're still guarding Athaliah and then other two people guarding the gate. So if she does become aware of it, she can't get there and stop it in time. Well, everything goes uh, according to plan and Joash is proclaimed king. Uh, you see at the end of verse 12, uh, that uh, Brett read right there, uh, verse 12. So then uh, they, uh, they, uh, he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. Uh, verse 13. When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, according to the custom. And the captains and the trumpets beside the king and all the people in the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, treason, treason. Which is <laughs> like, you know, she who killed everybody in her family to get the throne is going to get in there and be like, wait, that's illegal. You can't do that. Uh, and so she goes in and, and uh, cries out treason. Uh, then uh, Jehoiada 
Let me look, see how far I want to go. We can go to verse 16. Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out, uh, bring her out between the ranks and put uh, to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her and she went out through the horse's entrance to the king's house and there she was put to death. Um, Ralph Davis uh, is a fantastic commentator on First and Second Kings, uh, makes a really good observation on this scene. He says, uh, the usurper rules, but the chosen king secretly reigns unknown to Athaliah. So the, the usurper rules, but the chosen king secretly reigns unknown to Athaliah. And he just says, does, does that sound familiar? <laughs> familiar storyline to us. Um, and and I, I think it does. So Joash preserves the Davidic line of kings until the, the greatest Davidic king, King Jesus, would come. Um, who would die a bloody death in place for our sins and rise again and ascend to the right hand of God the Father where he rules and reigns. So earthly leaders now or uh, maybe unaware uh, of, of, of the reign of King Jesus or uh, unwilling to acknowledge the reign of King Jesus. But there he sits nonetheless. <laughs> there he sits on the throne, firmly in his rightful place. So what a great comfort and encouragement to us that, that the, the true king reigns even as the usurper thinks that, uh, that, that he is in control. Um, so that's the king's rescue. All right, so we're going to go on next to the king's reform um, and point two, the king's reforms. Any, any questions or comments on the king's rescue before we keep moving? All right, so we see this miraculous uh, salvation of uh, preservation of King Joash. You see him on the throne. Now we're going to see the reforms of Joash, the reforms of Joash. That's going to be our second scene in chapter 11. Uh, that's confusing. That should be chapter 11, verse 17. It's out of verse 1 right there. 11, 17 through 12, 16. Somebody read for us uh, uh, just the rest, starting in verse uh, 17. Just do the rest of chapter 11. Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and between uh, and the people and that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal, and tore down his altars and his image, images they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan the priest of Baal before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord, and he took the captains, the carites, the guards, and all the people of the land. And they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. It's going to actually go through verse 3 of chapter 12 as well. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all, the, all his days, because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. So talk to me a little bit about some of the reforms. Again, we're going to see another big kind of thing uh, uh, in um, the, the verses to follow, uh, chapter 12, verse 4 and following. But, but 
you know, what happens here in 11.17 through 12.3. Um, talk to me about, about what kind of what's going on in that scene and what are some of the things you notice. It kind of reminded me of like the, if you've ever seen like the Narnia movie, mm-hmm. like the Wicked Witch is like put to death and it's like white. And then there's like all this stuff that comes back to life. Hmm. <laughs> it's just like this like dead land, and like as soon as she's like she's done away with everything, just kind of comes back to life. They're getting rid of all these Baal worshippers and all these other things, and it's like there's like life again, and people are following the Lord again. Yeah, that's good. Yep. Verse seventeen is restoring people to back to the true worship of Yahweh. Mm-hmm. You say verse seventeen? No, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. How do they do that? How do they start with that? I mean, they made a covenant mm-hmm. between the Lord and the King. Yep. People. Yep. Yeah. Make a covenant. That's good. Yeah. So the uh, we're going to see in a minute, uh, kind of the 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 reason I want to stop here before we get to the he's Joash is going to do a lot of work repairing the temple, and that's going to get a lot of it's going to get a lot of material both here and in the parallel in Second Chronicles. Um, but I want to I want to stop first just to kind of see what you guys are pointing out that you know the he, he's going he's going to institute some reform he's going to do some repairs he's going to do this work uh, uh, and it's it's all going to be good work um, but but I, I just want to uh, stop and fo- uh, kind of see first kind of the you know the um, uh, where all of it starts right where all, so all the reform that he's going to be able to do in the temple is actually the result of a, I think a much more foundational reform. Uh, that that begins even earlier. That doesn't get as much ex- explanation in the text, and it's that idea there um, that the first reform they make is the return to God. As Isaac said, the first reform that they make is the return to a right worship of Yahweh. You know, everything starts to blossom again, right? Because of that. Um, so she she's she's dead. That that that's one thing. But then it's it's there's a fresh commitment uh, to worshiping the the one true God, and that's where things start to come back to life. And so they, uh, they're returning to God. There's a covenant made between the Lord uh, and, the, and, uh, and the king and the people. Um, let me just point out uh, several aspects of this covenant that, that were helpful for me as I was looking at the text and reflecting. Uh, the first thing is that it's, a, it's an identifying commitment. This, this covenant is an identifying commitment. right? So, so Israel uh, was God's special chosen people. But they had wandered from their relationship and their purpose and instead had entered into relationship with other gods. So they've worshipped and served the Baals, uh, Baal and all these other gods. And so this covenant renewal here is necessary because they've fallen away from God. They've forgotten who they were um, uh, and they, uh, they've, they've forgotten who their God is. And so in verse 17, they're covenanting together. It says they're to, uh, um, uh, to be the Lord's people. You see, so it's a it's an identifying covenant. It's a reminder of them that we aren't we weren't created and made to serve these false gods. We were created and made to serve the one true God. So it's a it's a restoration of their understanding of who they are, of their relationship with God and their identity as God's people. All right. So reform and renewal. Uh, I, I think for us, as we think about that, reform and renewal takes place in our own hearts as we remember who we are and whose we are as those created in the image of God and redeemed by his son, Jesus. All right, so sin, disbelief re- result when we stray from that reality, when we stray from the reality that we are God's children made in his image, redeemed by Jesus, bought with the blood. We, 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 when we wander from that reality and from that truth and from meditating on that and having that in our minds and in our hearts, 
um, that re reform and renewal always starts with, with going back to the God who made us and uh, the Savior who redeemed us uh, and the Spirit who fills us. And so, um, so that's kind of where you see there. It's an identifying commitment. Another piece to that, uh, when you're looking at what Jehoiada did, uh, he's, he's the priest, uh, the idea of the king of Israel, as we've looked at in the life of, of David and the life of Saul, yeah. Solomon, the king's rule starts with knowing the law, mm -hmm. knowing the Lord's word, yep. and that's the responsibility of the priest to, to teach the king, yep. and so we see that, you know, again, that's foundational, but mm -hmm. the king's authority starts with the law of the Lord, which he knows, which the priest instructs him in. Yep, that's right. That's good. That's good. I want everybody to remember that. We're going to come. That's going to be hugely important here in a minute. I mean, it's hugely important now, but uh, there's going to be a, there's a, again, if this was a movie, there's foreshadowing there that we need to hold on to because we're going to, we're going to see it come back up in a second. That's good. Yep. All right, so there's an identifying commitment. Um, uh, I think this covenant, I think a second thing is that it's a corporate commitment. So it's an identifying commitment. It's also a corporate commitment. Uh, in verse 17, if you notice, the people are covenanting together. It's, it's corporate. So I think that's a great reminder for us as well of our need for biblical community. Um, uh, not just a community that we visit from time to time, but a community where we are covenanted together. That's why we as a church have a church covenant, where we have membership, where we uh, come together and we agree to certain things and we do it corporately together. And we gather around uh, uh, <coughs> the God's word uh, and the ordinances on the Lord's day. Uh, so they are covenanted together, um, you know, in the same way that we uh, do that, uh, we corporately, um, formally commit ourselves uh, with others to follow the Lord together, to worship Him together, to serve Him together, and to be on mission together. Uh, third thing about this covenant is that it's an active commitment. It's an active commitment. If you look at verse 18, so it's, a, it's an identifying commitment, it's a corporate commitment, it's an active commitment. They, they covenant to the Lord together, and then they start smashing idols. Right? So it actually means something. They covenant together, and then they take a hammer, and they go to work. Um, um, so it, it, it takes action on our part uh, of what it looks like to covenant together. If anything is keeping us away from wholeheartedly following the Lord, uh, it must be put away. Um, uh, as, as Paul says in, in, in Romans, that we by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. Uh, we actively uh, want to um, be involved in each other's lives so that we can have that kind of idol smashing take place when we need it. Um, and, and we, we uh, likewise, by the Spirit's conviction and um, uh, on the authority of God's Word, uh, likewise root out um, hindrances and throw aside everything that would weigh us down in our following of the Lord. So, um, so commitment to God will necessarily mean that we can't be committed to other things in the same way, with the same dedication and the same passion and the same place of priority and the same way as following Him. That's just logical necessity. If we're following him, it's going to mean we can't be following other things with the same uh, veracity and, uh, and passion and uh, place of importance for those things. And so we remove those things and get rid of those things. Uh, fourth thing here about the, the covenant is, um, I'll just point out that it's a faulty commitment. <laughs> uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an identifying commitment. It's a corporate commitment. It's an active commitment. And it's a faulty commitment. What do I mean by that? Well, they couldn't keep it. Right, just like all the other covenants that we're going to see, they they couldn't keep it. They're not going to be able to keep it up. Um, uh, Jesus is going to make a new covenant that doesn't need to be removed and will never be broken. So, anytime we see covenants in the Bible, those are great things, but they're also a reminder of things that like we like nobody's actually able to keep those things. 
That's why the new covenant is so great that, uh, that, that uh, uh, the word is written on our hearts. Um, and so uh, just a reminder every time we see these, right? So, you know, to be better, uh, to, to try harder, to do good, that's not the message of Christianity, there's a problem with all of us. It's sin, and we need to have uh, new hearts, and that's what we get in the new covenant, and regeneration that is made possible by the death and resurrection of Christ and, <clears throat> and repenting of our sins and turning and trusting in Him. Um, so, yeah, so commitments always need to be removed. Uh, I'm sorry, commitment, uh, commitments always need to be renewed. Covenants remade, rededication, do-overs, fresh attempts, and that's why God sent Jesus, <laughs> so that he could save us fully. And finally, uh, he's a greater high priest, so that you don't have offerings made over and over again. He's a greater sacrifice. This is the message of Hebrews. Uh, and so um, I always try to remind myself of that when I see covenants in Scripture, uh, is, is the uh, kind of even the faulty nature and the inability for, for people to, to, to fully keep them. So, um, all right. Now we're going to go. Any, any, uh, so, that's, so we have the uh, rescue of Joash. We see how he was preserved uh, by Jehoshaphat and, and others. Uh, and Jehoiada kind of, uh, kind of speaking into his life. Uh, we see reforms of, of Joash. Oh, actually didn't read all the reforms. All right, look at verse 4. <laughs> Chapter 12, verse 4. The big one that I talked about. So Joash said to the priests, All the money of the holy things that is brought into the house of the Lord, the money for which each man is assessed, the money from the assessment of persons, and the money that a man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take each from his donor and let them repair the house wherever the, any need of repairs is discovered. By the, but by the 23rd year of King Joash, or Jehoash, the priest had made no repairs on the temple. Right, So they're collecting all this money. And the money was to be made for repairs in the temple, but he reigns for a while, and he's like, nobody's made any repairs. What's going on? Um, verse 7, Therefore King Jehoash summoned Jehoiada, the priest, and other priests, and said to them, Why are you not repairing the house? Now therefore take no more money from your donors, but hand it over to the, for the repair of the house. So the priests agreed that they should take no more money for them, from the people, and that they should not repair the house. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in the lid and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. What did he just make there? The first what in church history? Donation box. Yeah, the first donation box in church history. There it is. This is your reference in your Bible for the first offering box. Uh, we still have those uh, in our sanctuary right now. Uh, and so the priest who guarded the threshold put in it all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. And whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest came up and they bagged and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they would give the money that was weighed out into the hands of the workmen who had the oversight of the house of the Lord. And they paid it out to the carpenters and the builders who worked in the house of the Lord and to the masons and stone cutters, as well as to the timber and quarried stone for making repairs in the house of the Lord and uh, for any outlay for the repairs of the house. But they were not uh, made for the house of the Lord, basins of silver, snuffers, bowls, trumpets, vessels of gold, or silver from the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. For that was given to the workmen who were repairing the house of the Lord with it. They did not ask for an accounting from the men into whose hands they had delivered the money to pay out the workmen, for they dealt honestly. The money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. All right, so uh, there was a there was a kind of a leaky leaky offering system, and they were this money was unaccounted for, and so uh, Joash, part of his reform again after all the other reforms and the covenant that they made is that he made this box to put the offerings in, and lo and behold, somebody's watching that, and the money's actually starting to show up, and it's uh, it's uh, it, it, there's accounting for it, and so they use that money to repair the house of the Lord. All right, 
number three, so you see the rescue of Joash, you see the reforms of Joash, and number three, the ruin of Joash, the ruin of Joash. So here in these last five verses, so we, we have five more verses here uh, of uh, in, in um, Joash's life, um, but the narrative of his life is going to end in kind of a strange way. Look at it, verse 17. At that time, Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. But when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts, and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and sent these to Hazael, king of Syria. Then Hazael went away from Jerusalem. What just happened right there? You guys catch what did Joash do? You had an invading army. You had a threat, king of Syria. He offered up like something to the other kings, like made a peace deal instead of like going to the Lord. That's right. Yeah. So he paid off. He had a, had a Syrian king coming in, and so he paid him off to get rid of him, and he paid him off out of God's temple. So this temple, mind you, that he's been working to repair and restore, and all this revival and reform that he's doing, and then something happens. And we see this last scene of his life where he's like, he starts, he's paying off a pagan king with God's money. Strange, huh? Now the rest, uh, verse 19, Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? His servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash in the house of Milo on the way that goes to Silla. It was Jazakar, the son of uh, Shimeath, and Jehazabad, the son of Shomer, his servants, who struck him down so that he died. And they buried him uh, with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So not only do we see this final scene in his life where he's paying off a pagan king with God's money, but then his own people turn on him and kill him. And you're reading the text, you're like, what happened? Like something, something went sideways here. You had this great king doing all these reforms, rebuilding the temple, See, everything seems to be going really, really well, but what in the world went sideways? Where did things go wrong? I'll remind you, go back and look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I told you to hold on to this. Remember the comment from earlier. Look at, look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is a little summary statement of his reign. Look at verse 2. Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days. What's it say? Because. Because what? Mm-hmm. Because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Not necessarily a bad thing, but I think it's there in the text because it's a little bit of foreshadowing. Look at Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles twenty-four. Second Chronicles 24, verse 1. Joash was seven years old. This is a parallel text. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Joash, here it is, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. That sheds light on what we saw in Second Kings, where it says because he did right. Why? Because Jehoiada instructed him. Now, you could take that as, oh, it's good, right? He had a discipler, and the discipler helped him follow the Lord. That's great. I think Second Chronicles gives you a little bit of a, a, fills that out a little bit. How does Second Chronicles help you? How, how do you read that, that, that statement over his life now? What do you think? 
Because it says he did right all of his days, all the days he was alive. What's it say? All the days that who was alive? That Jehoiada was alive. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days that that guy was alive. Not all of his days. Somebody talk to me. Give me some application. Yep. Yep. Exactly right. So we have this statement. So, so Jehoiada dies and something's going to go wrong in his life. Something, something, something's going to be amiss. Look at uh, Second Chronicles 24. I think this is fascinating. Second Chronicles 24. Look at verse 15. But Jehoiada, so we had that statement. He did right all the days of Jehoiada. And then you look at verse 15. And again, this is right after I'm skipping over the, the offering box stuff. I'm skipping over the reforms. That's what we just read already. All right. So then we, in verse 15, Jehoiada grew old and full of days. No, sorry. But Jehoiada grew old and full of days and he died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. Again, the foreshadowing that we saw already, it's kind of like, uh-oh, something, something's about to go down because he's dead. Verse 17, Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Then he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. So after Jehoiada dies, somebody else comes in and he listens to them. What, what, what can you tell me about, about Joash? Any observations just, just on kind of reading between the lines right there into him, his character, who he is, his life a little bit? Yep, that's right. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, Tim. I agree with everything, but on the other hand, he became a king when he was seven, so he was used to getting advice from others because he couldn't make up his own mind. So probably it was also a problem of the priests. He did not give him an option at his early days to make his own decisions, and so it's like a mutual problem, I think. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Yep, that's an interesting thought. Children, you know, you can always make decisions for your children, but there is a time when you, I mean, I have no children, but uh, <laughs> where, it says, where there is a time you have to, okay, if you're on your own, like my father told me when I was 18. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so in, in verse 17, when it says, now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Are these his sons then? Uh, I don't think they're... they're I don't think they're sons. I think there's some other kind of uh, just rulers, yeah, other authorities that, that are kind of sub-authorities in the land, yeah. yeah. And yeah. there's nothing that mentions heart transformation of George. Yeah. Personally. Hmm. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I agree just with all those thoughts. Uh, I had, there was a pastor I studied under in Texas who called this story the, the curse of the umbilical cord. <laughs> um, that he was, he was rightly nourished by Jehoiada, right? I mean, he was seven when he became king. But Brett's also right. One of the things he should have known was clearly what we see in Scripture about what kind of king we're, we're supposed to have, right? Who's going to write a copy of the law, read it, like he's supposed to know God's word. 
And so you, you kind of wonder, you're like, well, was Joash at fault? Was it, was it Jehoiada's fault? Like, was it a little bit of both? Uh, because there's, there's a kind of a right sense. And I think the same thing is true in our own discipleship and our own church membership. There is a right sense in which we, and we talk about it all the time, there's a right sense in which we are helping one another along to heaven. There's also some personal culpability and responsibility there that, that we, you know, that, that if, you know, if, if, that, if that discipler is out of my life, what happens in my life? If my, if my wife is not around, what's my character look like? If that husband is on a business trip, what, what, away from his Christian community, what, what's his life look like? You see what I'm saying? Like, there's a right sense in which we have church membership, discipleship, all those kinds of things. But part of that discipleship is to prepare people for what happens when you're out there on your own. To prepare each other for what happens whenever nobody's around, that no other Christians are around, your spouse isn't around. Um, that, that's part of the, the Christian life as well. And so, yeah, I, I don't know that we see in the text exactly the answer to that question, but I think it's certainly, Tim, worth kind of taking the application to heart. That uh, So we don't want to be a Joash, but we also don't want to be a Jehoiada if Jehoiada was enabling him or not preparing him for life after he was gone. Right? I, I think we want to see both of those things. That's good. Well, let's keep going. There's a little bit more here. So after the death of Jehoiada, oh, sorry, I already read that part. The, the king listens to them. So you already start to see, well, why would he pay, why would he, this guy who reformed the temple, why is he paying off this king of Syria with stuff in the temple? Well, he's, he's abandoned the temple. He's abandoned this work of God that he and Jehoiada were committed to. After Jehoiada dies, he abandons the house of the Lord. So he doesn't care about God's stuff. He's just going to sell it off. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the problem, I think, was that when they destroyed the, uh, the temple of Baal, they did not destroy the high places. Yeah. So the people were still going to the high places. Mm-hmm. And so these advisors, though they were part of the kingdom, and they were apparently following the laws that Joash was setting in place yep. with Jehoiada, they were still divided people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, you picked that up. We read that earlier, right? Yeah, he, he yeah. didn't take away the high places. That's right. Yeah, yep. they didn't pick, take them up so when Jehoiada and that was Jehoiada's oversight. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So that was a, which I think you see all through the kings. That's always a statement, even with the best kings. Sometimes uh, it's that's the that's the one little thing, you know, that he did what was right now as a lord, but nevertheless, the high places weren't taken away. All yeah. the way through, yep. there were remnants of this pagan worship. Yep. That that were not destroyed, although God told them to destroy those things. Yep. That's right. They, they, they didn't do it. Yep, that's right. Yep, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so there's a, there's a little remnant in their heart of, of idolatry still that they, they didn't get rid of. That's exactly right. Now look at verse 20. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. All right, so okay. You've got this king who was following the Lord with Jehoiada. God's going to send another prophet. Who, it's, not, it's not even going to be the prophet versus him. He's going to come with God's word. He's like, listen, Joash, this is what God's word says. All right. So you would think like, okay, it, it, you know, this isn't two guys just butting heads. Somebody's coming to him in the right way and say, look, I'm, I'm coming to you with God's word on the authority of his word. What are you doing? How's he react? Look at verse 21. But they conspired against him. And by the command of the king, they stoned him with stones. Now, note, that wasn't, so, so it was somebody coming with the authority of God's word. And who was it? Who, who was it that was coming with the authority of God's word? Joy of the Son. Joy of the Son. They sent, 
They sent, uh, if anybody can knock some sense into Joash, let's get his disciples, his mentor's son to go with God's word. So his mentor's son comes and says, hey, Joash, man, we've known each other a long time. Look at what God's word's saying. And, and he cons- instead of listening to him, they conspire against him. And by the command of the king, they stone him. Joash has him executed because he doesn't like what God's word says. This is a chilling, chilling verse. They stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Again, one pastor I know, as I said, dubbed Joash's life the curse of the umbilical cord. So he's rightly nourished by godly counsel, but he never learned to live life on his own. He never learned to discern truth from error based on study of scripture. He never seems to have developed the ability to spot falsehood and stand for what was right apart from one guy in his ear telling him what to do. He relied solely on Jehoiada, and then he relied on others in general without connecting it to God's word. So I just, I, I take this as a, as a you know, uh, just thinking about our own application of this and our own lives and people that we're meeting with maybe or people that we're friends with uh, at church or people that we're, um, have the opportunity to mentor or disciple I just think it's a good question to ask if if there's any person or place in your life right now that if you were removed from that relationship or that place you were removed from that you'd stop believing or living what was true. So does your following of God, your holiness, your purity, your spiritual discipline look different if your roommate is home versus gone? Does it look different if you're on a business trip? Does it look different if your spouse is away for the night? Does it look different at lunch after church versus happy hour after work? Does your speech change? What shows you stream on your computer? Who you talk to at work? How you discipline your kids? Your tone and your approach to discipline your kids? Does that look different whenever you have a dinner party over versus when you're just alone with them by yourself? The way you spend money when people are around versus not. Laziness or diligence and spiritual disciplines or handling general responsibilities of life. I, I mean, I, just worth us seeing this example and asking some of those hard questions of ourselves and of others around us. So this consideration is really a consideration about what we really love, right? None of us will be faithful without learning how to love God well. The Christian life is lived in community, but it's revealed in private. You can have someone speaking into your life. You can have great parents, great mentors, a great church, people pouring wisdom and truth your way. But if we don't watch and pray against idols and against temptation, if we don't really love Jesus on our own, um, uh, then, then uh, you know, if we don't love the, 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 the one true living God, then things can fade away. So there's a couple kind of, kind of uh, maybe just concluding thoughts, observations, applications here. Uh, uh, one is that we must have personal communion. We must have a sweet fellowship with God he, 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 where He is known by us. He is friend to us. We always come back to Him. And David is an amazing king, not because he doesn't mess up, but because he comes back to worship. Not because he never has you know, maybe doubts and fears and frustrations, but he always takes those to the Lord. And he's honest with Him about those and let, has those resolve in Him. Right? Not because he doesn't question and have uncertainty, but because he always comes back to God. Not because he never struggled. He did struggle, but he never stopped there with the struggle. He always came back to the Lord. And so we must, in the same way, have such a personal 
uh, communion with the Lord. Uh, a second uh, thought here is that we must grow in understanding of His Word. We must grow in understanding of His Word in faithful community, tethered to truth. That's why Ephesians says that God has given all these leaders in the church to equip us uh, uh, that, that we, we might not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, which I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are here because you want that, right? Uh, so let's do it all the more. Uh, uh, I, I think that's, that's what we want. We want to be um, grow an understanding of his word and faithful community, and we must never kind of slack on that commitment. Uh, third, we must have honesty and openness, honesty and openness in that community so that we might be encouraged and helped by brothers and sisters in it. Um, and so we have a, a personal communion with the Lord. We grow in understanding of his word in faithful community in which we have honesty and openness with others uh, when we're starting to go the way of Joash um, so that others are in our lives and can see that and to help us and to pull us back into faithful following of the Lord. And then uh, a fourth and final thing I jotted down here was that we must equip others for life outside the womb. <laughs> It goes back to Tim's comment. We must equip others for life outside the womb. So for the people that we're, we're meeting with, we want to equip them and teach them and train them and disciple them in such a way, whether it's our kids or whether it's uh, friends of us or, or people that we're uh, meeting with for, for Bible study or, or for prayer or whatever it is. One of the things that we want to be doing is, is equipping them so that uh, we, don't, we don't want to be codependent where like we just feel like we always need to be needed by somebody. Uh, no, we want, we want to equip them to outstrip us to surpass us to, to follow the lord more fervently to to uh, we want to train and equip so that people are are lifted up and exalted and platformed to um to do great things and to follow the lord and we we, we need to do that versus um just kind of having this dependence on us all the time which which feels good sometimes but it's 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 not honoring the lord and isn't preparing people um for uh where the lord may be calling them all right, that's it. That is the life of Joash. Hopefully now, if you take a pop quiz on Joash, you would do better than when we started uh, the life of, of, uh, of King Joash. So I commend to you these little stories of kings all throughout uh, 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 these chapters, uh, First, Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. Uh, I think there's some fascinating stuff in here, again, uh, that, that reminds us uh, to look to Christ, gives us uh, a lot of practical application, uh, shows of our, uh, our need of him and uh, our need to follow the Lord in the ways that we've seen in his life. So... Um, so keep going, keep studying this word and, uh, keep being changed by it. Let's pray together. God, thank you for, uh, your word. Thank you that it is true and it is alive. It is active. I pray that what we just read here would, uh, encourage us, challenge us, um, uh, convict us, encourage us all the things that you do with your word, that we would, uh, be molded and shaped by it. Uh, uh, Lord, thank you for Jesus, the truer and better King, um, who, who, uh, King Jesus, who reigns even now, even when there are little Athaliahs and people thinking they're, they're, uh, they're reigning and ruling and desiring all the glory, but he will get all the glory. Thank you for sending him uh, that we might have eternal life in him by turning and trusting in him. God, I pray that even this morning as we go to uh, worship together uh, in our main gathering, I, I pray that that message, uh, as we know, will be proclaimed. And I pray that there would be people who would hear it and believe it and trust it for the first time and that all the rest of us uh, would, would uh, likewise believe it and trust it afresh. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.